Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today joining us for his second appearance on the show in a matter of just weeks is our friend and guest, Bill Barheit, founder and CEO of crypto investment and wealth management platform, Abra. You know Bill because he was on the show literally a few days ago, but he crawled into uh, my DMs, so to speak, and he, he said, Frank... We got to unpack the three arrows situation together. And I think the reason why it was top of mind for you to talk to me about it was because we kind of explored this question of how did the yields exist? How did all of these retail platforms, how were they able to sort of work with these? We thought it was multiple firms, but at the end of the day, it was this core counterparty we found out. But how did it all work? And I was kind of pressing you on some of this stuff. And now you're ready to kind of at least share from your vantage point, from your seat, operating um, one of the more important companies in this sort of retail market. You're, you know, props to you for being afloat right now. I mean, everyone has gotten hit and there's a number, if you're not facing bankruptcy right now, you still haven't opened up your withdrawals. I haven't seen anything uh, of that sort out of Abra, but I've never gotten so many messages congratulating me on surviving. I think I did, well, the first time I did Tough Mudder for 12 hours, I got a bunch of those messages. I don't know if you know what that is, like an endurance race. Yeah. But since then, I have gotten as many survival congratulatory messages as I've seen in the last month. So how is business? Yeah, look, it's been a tough few weeks. We are fully committed to you know, running the business the same way in up markets, down markets, sideways markets. And so what that means in English is, is that if you want to take money out, even if it's to stress test us and you're a large client, so be it. That's the way it goes. And we had several clients do that, meaning they took money out, they stress tested us. And then a couple of weeks later, they put the money back. Right. And, and that's fine. It is what it is. And, and so, you know, when you're managing to uh, a duration in a portfolio, which is one of those risk parameters that we talked about in the last show, right? Mm -hmm. You're committed to uh, exactly that. You have to put your money where your proverbial mouth is. And in this case, we've done that and we've done it really well, whether it's the $5 withdrawal or the $50 million withdrawal. We stress tested all of our counterparties. They didn't like it. We did it again. Uh, and then we did it again. And what that means is we, we brought a lot of them to cash and then we put the money back to work again, just like our counterparties were doing. We do that anyway, but, but we've never done it at such speed just to really make sure that they were doing what they were telling us they were doing. And, you know, we account for a certain amount of losses and we're within that range and everything's fine in that regard. But, you know, I, not only in the last time we spoke, but I can show you videos from last year and even the year before where I, I said, look, companies in our space are going to fail. It is inevitable. This looks and smells like long-term capital management to me. The fact that it's crypto, okay, it puts us you know, more in the crosshairs of certain media, uh, certain regulators, 
but at the end of the day, you can you can have the same screw ups as long term capital management with a lot of different products. Crypto just happens to be the one that is really easy to do this with right now. And if you actually go back to the LTCM days, it, and you know a lot of these primes didn't know that they'd be in the same room and they were all the largest customer, the, all the largest counterparty for LTCM and didn't know it. Well, guess what happened here, right? There's a, a the bunch same of exact thing. Same None of these companies knew. None of it's these companies knew. Right. Well, it, not only did they not know, but you could also make the case, hey, look, if you're practicing safe, sound risk management practices, it would be better to know. But in theory, you shouldn't need to know, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're fully collateralized, if you know, you're stress testing, uh, if you've got concentration risk ma- uh, under control. So, so, I mean, that's point number one, right? Concentration risk is by far the easiest thing to manage for in lending business. Can I ask you something? I don't, I don't remember if this was um, public at the time of our last conversation, but something like 60% of the money or the funds that Voyager lent out, customer funds that they lent out, was to Three Arrows Capital. I mean, to me, that just seems insane, right? That's the concentration risk that you're talking right. about, I'm assuming. Now- I don't have the full inside knowledge of what was going on, but my understanding is that was an improvement because before that, my understanding, and I don't know if this is 100% true, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, is that 100% of their yield was being managed by Celsius. Now, I can't even begin at those numbers to, to articulate the insanity of that for a couple yeah, of Yeah, just so entangled. Right. So, so now my understanding is at some point they moved off of Celsius but to your point, had were basically lazy and, and not having appropriate concentration risk measures in place. And, and by the way, just for those who don't understand, concentration risk in English basically very simply means don't put all your eggs in one basket. OK, uh, it's it, it can be more complex than that, depending upon collateral levels and other things, meaning if you've got one hundred and twenty percent collateral against the billion dollar loan and 10 percent collateral against the two hundred and fifty million dollar loan the billion dollar loan is not as risky, mm-hmm. right? So you have, so, so concentration risk actually is a bit of a formula, but even then it's, it's kind of common sense. And usually it's a function of laziness because, Hey, the rates are good. Nobody's asking any questions. Markets going up and to the right. Just keep, you know, keep fueling the fire. Right. And, and it is pure laziness. And unfortunately there were a couple of firms that were in that situation for different reasons, but, but it all comes down to the same thing. So it, it sounds mind blowing. It's crazy. All these wonderful, you know, pejoratives. But at the end of the day, this has happened several times before in modern financial history, just with other products, right? Uh, LTCMB one, and and there was a bunch of this, you know, levered re- real estate market contagion in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and and now with mismanaged and in some cases fraudulent crypto funds. The big story of yesterday, or the big revelation from these court documents was the fact that Genesis lent out $2.4 billion or nearly that much with only $1.2 billion in any sort of collateral. That, I mean, at least for crypto, maybe not for traditional markets, is a stupefying number given, yep. given what we now understand about the operations of Three Arrows Capital. And with all fairness to everyone who works there, and to all fairness, you know, to to everyone involved, really, but how the hell does that happen? How do you feel comfortable enough to lend out that much money when it was really, and I think this is clear at this point, all for Gazy? Yeah. So... I would say at the very top of this pyramid, I think somebody from Three Arrows is going to go to jail. I, I mean, I don't see how the level of fraud that seems to have been committed doesn't now move into the criminal. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. A, I'm not a. You know, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I have no experience with that. But it just seems obvious to me that this is criminal. Okay, if you are representing that you are not levered when you are highly levered. And you're signing documents to this effect, which is my understanding of what's going on. And, and my guess is, is they're making the same 
stipulations to regulators, I would assume at some point, because once you're managing over a certain amount of money, the oversight rules change. And so I would assume that somewhere someone is asking the same questions, not just the counterparties, that the levels of fraud that will probably be uncovered in the coming weeks and months are probably like Madoff-esque in scope and size. Mm -hmm. I would find it difficult to believe based on what we're both reading right now and, and the fact that, you know, we're, we're hearing about all these personal assets that shouldn't have been affordable <laughs> to those individuals under the circumstances, that this is not the case. Okay, so let's put that aside and, and let's, let's assume that's, I'm going to assume that's true because I believe it is. Yeah. I think that you have to dig in in each individual lender's case as to why they were willing to go with, um, you know, higher LTV loans than what you might normally do, you know, under normal risk management practices, right? Uh, I don't know what percentage of the lending book that was versus their accounts for losses versus the duration of those positions versus the history of, of repayments. On the surface, what you said makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but I also know some of the people that are making those decisions. And they're, they've always come across as very smart, very risk aware. So, but again, you go back to long-term capital management days and I could probably make the same statement. I mean, this is more of a philosophical question than it is a, a crypto market participant question <laughs> or more of a criminal justice theory question, how, how people get away with something like this. But in terms of business engagement, what was it do you think that these two were able to do that convinced them that they were the smartest or convinced their counterparties that they were the smartest people in the room? Well, I don't know that they were ever convinced of that. I think what my take is, is that things got out of hand once they, first first of all, you had the anchor Luna DPEG, okay? Yeah. And they had significant exposure there. My understanding is hundreds of millions in losses. Okay. Now, how do you explain that away? Am I, is my fund solvent? Is my fund insolvent? Am I asking you to throw good money after bad to plug my holes? Am I disclosing that? Nothing wrong with asking somebody to make you whole in an investment if you've suffered losses. It happens all the time. The question is, are you telling the investors that that's what they're doing when they put more money in? Or are mm -hmm. you telling them that everything is great, the funds, the losses were accounted for separately somehow, which is clearly not the case here. Right. Then they ended up levering themselves even more as a result. It's still un unfolding, but my understanding is hundreds of millions uh, in Ethereum were levered against to take USDC and USDT out at a, at a pretty high LTV ratio in a market that was tanking, right, which is problematic. Right. And then you basically had now illiquid tokens. Right. And so anyway, they were unable to add collateral to pay off the debt. This kind of creates a positive feedback loop, which can bring down an entire market because basically the music, the, it's musical chairs. As you know, the music keeps playing. People are switching chairs. Everything's fine. And then the positive feedback loop kicks in when everybody's excessively levered, which is what Three Arrows was doing here. Right. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when the music stopped, and everything started to unwind, it happened unbelievably quickly. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the proverbial tide went out very fast. So I think that we're still going to learn more. You know, we're starting to get a, a sense for why the staked ETH uh, depegged a little bit and who, who was responsible, for example. And all of this was kind of happening at the same time. And, and the forensics out there in the cryptoverse are uh, quickly figuring this out. Uh, but it's pretty clear at the highest level that they were basically taking good money fraudulently, throwing it after bad to plug holes without representing that that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So did you have any exposure to these to these two guys? Yeah, so we had uh, very small exposure, like, you know, a couple million. 
uh, which we wrote off, but it's well underneath our threshold for what we would account for. Um, and the collateral was sold almost immediately, the first sign of any sense of smell of, you know, anything bad. Same thing with Anchor. We were, we were testing Anchor. We never, we never went all in. We have a lot of concerns about it. And a few weeks before the DPEG, the team said, came back to me and said, all these kind of risk flags are going off and this thing's going to enter a positive feedback loop at some point, And we don't want to mm. be within 10 miles of this because we don't really know uh, how deep this rabbit hole goes, who's over levered in here, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out the two were related, which was impossible to really tell to that degree because it wasn't being disclosed. Um, and as you know, in crypto, you know, if you're highly incentivized to hide what you're doing, you, you're going to hide what you're doing. So, you know, to your, back to your question, from a balance sheet perspective, Abra's fine. From, you know, in terms of like the halo effect, right? We've had a lot of worried clients the last few weeks. So my team has basically been burning the midnight oil, getting them all on the phone and explaining to them why Abra's fine, why our risk practices wouldn't allow for this level of concentration, especially uncollateralized, et cetera, et cetera. And so for the most part, you know, clients who withdrew came back. Um, we had a few who went to cold storage, which is totally fine. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I did predict that a few companies here would die. I just didn't think it was going to happen all in one week. And I felt that long term, these risk practices, and we're not the only one that in the space that I think has reasonable risk practices, but I think it's going to basically look and be graded just like a bank's lending practices would at scale. And that's where this is headed. And that's exactly where it should be headed. Now, we can get into DeFi versus CeFi and the roles that they play. But I think this is really headed towards looking more and more like a banking space. Mm. In hindsight, were there any red flags about Three Arrows, at least in your engagement with the firm as a counterparty? Yeah, there are a couple of firms, including at least one that's now defunct, that we always ask our counterparties if they have exposure to. And in many cases, it's it's a deal breaker for us, depending on who the counterparty is. I mean, if it's a huge, you know, Wall Street bank, we'll question why. But if it was me, why if, not? if it was you, were you know, <laughs> yeah, run them over and then run them over again. No, no, it, it, you know, it, it's one of those. It's in the risk parameters, okay, mm -hmm. and it's all an equation. But it does come up. So when it comes up, it's in the context of everything else. And there are certain counterparties where we've said, hey, look, if you have exposure to these guys, it's a non-starter for us. Three arrows. Uh, well, no, their counterparties. Their counterparties. Right. Meaning, are you exposed to Celsius, for example? Got it. Right. And in certain counterparties, if they had said yes, we wouldn't have gotten in there. Now, the thing about three arrows was, you know, it's very difficult to take the company that has like the best polish and then take all the risk parameters that we would ask onboarding at us for us takes weeks not mm -hmm. you know not if you get if you're a consumer you get the app you you apply for a loan it's 15 percent ltv you, you got your cash in an hour okay mm -hmm. but if you're applying for an institutional to be an institutional counterparty usually it's four to six weeks you know if, if it's a bigger counterparty ironically it could actually go faster but for the, especially the smaller ones where there's going to be more collateral, it's usually a few weeks. And then we'll dig more into use of funds and existing leverage is their hypothecation, you know, the level of rehypothecation. And we'll actually ask them to attest to that. It's very hard to test for, but, but you can get clues from the balance sheet, but we'll test for it if we can. And we'll certainly ask them to attest to it. And in their case, we did. And my understanding is they lied. So is this attestation, um, this has been making the rounds on Twitter. I tweeted it out. A few other people did too, I think. And it was in the, you know, this is a thousand page long document. There was one exhibit. Is this part of the BVI filing that you're talking about? I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah, the BVI filing. There's one exhibit where it's like, I imagine, uh, you know, this was fired off to some counterparty where they mm. were just trying to confirm maybe for for them to maybe they needed a, a, an extension or or, or something I, I don't know exactly what this pertained to but it was Kyle Davies and he's like here's our nav it's 
in millions, one point uh, or two point five billion dollars signed Kyle Davies. Was and this that was like it. a telegram thing or no, was this it? was like a just like a document. I see. We wouldn't take that. I mean, we would we would ask for the standard formats in which you report your quarterly numbers to everyone. Uh, or monthly, depending upon what the deal is. Certain counterparties we demand monthly, certain, there's a few times where it's been weekly, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever it is, and it's in the same format that you would report to whoever it is you're reporting to. And we're getting samples of those before you're onboarded anyway, so we already have expectations as to what they would look like. Now, again, risk, there's a whole bunch of things you can test for to basically create inconsistencies right? Like a lawyer Mm. and a jury trial. And, you know, I'm not going to give you all the secrets, but these guys are good. Mm. Okay. And so what do you think they did the best in terms of their trickery? I think, unfortunately, they genuinely believed that the market was going to go up post anchor and that they were going to be able to make up for the losses, which is a standard young error on funds that get too big too quickly who don't take the pain that they deserve to take. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember reading principles when Dalio talked about his first fund that basically went bust and he took the pain. Mm He lived to fight another day and they weren't willing to take the pain. So because everybody wanted to believe around them, especially those who were in hundreds of millions of dollars that, you know, look, if you're Voyager, part of your business is predicated on believing that crypto is going up and to the right. Okay. So that's somewhat at odds with sound risk management practices in lending, which dictate concentration risk and exposure to another fund who also is basically making assumptions that everything will be fine based upon crypto going back up and to the right again. When you combine those two, right, it's a recipe for disaster because you basically, like I said, you want to believe what you're being spoon fed. And I think that's what happened is everybody wanted to believe because it was easier. Again, concentration risk, I keep saying this, it's a, it really is laziness at the end of the day, right? So you can make all those mistakes and still be alive because you'd have not put 60% of your fund or 60% of your lending book in, in one fraudulently managed fund, right? Uh, If you had 2% in there or 1% in there, we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? Or the nature of the discussion would be different. Those guys might still be on the run, but Voyager might be alive, for example. I think one element of whether or not certain companies are alive or not, there's circumstances outside of your control, like three arrows. I I mean, there's some degree of concentration risk and counterparty risk that you could have done to avoid that. But at the end of the day, everyone lent to them. It's hard to kind of like poo poo people for that because it's like everyone's done it. But how do you keep customers from completely running for the exit? Because to a degree, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Celsius mentioned this in their bankruptcy statement, which was fought in Twitter and in the media made customers more nervous, which kind of perpetuated the withdrawals, which perpetuated okay. our, our circumstances. Fine. That's fine. I, mean, look, I, I think that's fair. But I was in the middle of this. I had way more. Uh, every month since we launched Earn, we've had more deposits than withdrawals except for last month. But then how do you, yeah, how do you mitigate? How do you mitigate you that? Do you call you them don't. up? You can't do anything. You don't. So, so what you tell them is we're going to do exactly what we told you we we're going to do because the duration model for our Earn program doesn't allow for a run on the bank. It doesn't. And and Celsius, to my understanding, lied about that because when mm. the run happened or, or when the withdrawals happened, it created a run because they had a duration mismatch. Mm. Right. So that's my point. So explain that to like people or maybe like don't understand that. If you allow people. Right, and, and I think Abra, BlockFi, Celsius all did this differently. Uh, so, so Abra gives you real-time access to your funds and the terms of service say withdrawals processed up to seven days. I don't know of a withdrawal that's ever taken like more than two or three. And usually those are like millions. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're withdrawing 10,000 bucks, you're, you're going to have it in hours or the next day, almost every time. All right. Mm-hmm. 
But if you look at the blended duration of the lending portfolio that is used to generate that yield, if it's significantly more than what the maximum in the terms of service allows for, you have a problem. Now, you're, you're leaving money on the table, mm-hmm. which is why people do it, meaning the longer b- blended duration model you have, the more money you're making. Mm-hmm. Because lo- longer form term loans generally make more money. Okay? So, so the question is, well, why would people be willing to create a, a, a lending portfolio that is a higher duration than the number of days that you have access to your funds for? Because you make more money. Right? So we've been willing to leave money on the table since the get-go to have a duration model which is more in sync with the withdrawal terms of the model because we're not a bank, at least not yet, which means there's no fractional reserve lending, right? Which means there's no backstop. But so many of these, I I think I said this last time you were on, I mean, in what way was Celsius not a bank? The fact that they had a token? I mean- so we talked about this. We, mm-hmm. I, I looked at this every which way. We delayed the launch of Earn for over a year, right? Because we looked at this and we said, there's only two ways to pay yield that I'm aware of. Security offerings, in the United States specifically, security offerings or some form of bank. Money transmitter cannot pay interest. And that's what they both were, to my knowledge. Uh, BlockFi and, and Celsius, I'm not sure about Voyager. Voyager had another problem, which we can get into, which I think was illegal. But, but we said, okay, we're a small startup. This was three years ago, when, or three and a half years ago, when we first had the idea. We can't form a bank. <laughs> so how are we going to do this? Because structuring every deposit as a security offering is a non-starter. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we said, okay, let's find a bank or a trust that we can partner with to pay the yield. And so I started making the rounds, and we partnered with Prime Trust. And when you get an earn account at Abra, you're getting an account at Prime Trust. And eventually, you're going to be seeing announcements where Abra has formed its own bank. Okay, I'm not going to get into that today, but it's, it's happening right now. Okay, And we're going to take that over ourselves, that part of the business. But, but we delayed the launch of earn because we saw this crystal clear. It, it only took us a few days of analyzing this to come to this conclusion. It wasn't that hard. That's part one. Yeah. Part two is if you're if you're offering both trading and interest payment services, some kind of earn or yield service, those are regulated differently. Trading accounts generally require 100% reserves, right? Like meaning, you know, an exchange account or, you know, um, some type of wallet trading service. You, you, you need to have at least 100% uh, in crypto versus the, the, the sum total balance of all of the accounts that you're managing. Okay. Now, that means by definition, if you're paying yield on trading accounts, there's something very wrong, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Voyager was doing. Okay? Now, we tried to explain this to a few parties, and they didn't listen to us. They said it's because they were already convinced that they had an issue with them. And in my opinion, this was a bigger issue, right? Because you're 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 basically violating money transmitter laws if you're hypothecating funds out of a trading account, uh, unbeknownst to the individual consumer who has rights. So, so all of these things are happening at the same time. And we took a step back at the very beginning. We said, this is not that hard to understand. It's just really hard to implement correctly. So we said, okay, this could easily take 12 to 18 months, but I don't think that we have a choice, even yeah. if others are gaining market share at our expense in the meantime, which is what happened. The other element is a lot of misrepresentation to the customer, like with the... FDIC insurance that was kind of promised to customers at Voyager. I mean, the tweets are fairly egregious. Like, it's basically like your USDC is FDIC insured. We dug into this because we have a lot of clients who would use us and and Voyager. And they said, can you explain this to me? And I said, well, it's not our account, but we'll take a look. And Mm -hmm. we did. And we said, oh, my God, they're basically twisting the message on deposits that haven't been converted to stables yet mm-hmm. to make it sound like the entire account is FDIC insured. I, I mean, unethical at best, fraudulent at worst. And you know, in the, in the big picture, I don't know if it matters now, but it is something that I promise you the FDIC is going to look at because they don't take kindly to 
abuse of their turf, I'm sure. No, definitely not. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe White and Woodland Green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. So how do you see all of this kind of stabilizing? Have we, as people on Twitter put it to me, are you done hearing things, Frank? Are you done? I think you're going to hear a lot more details vis-a-vis this contagion that happened. I think the worst is over. Look, long-term capital didn't bring down the banks. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Three Arrows is going to bring down the CeFi world. I do think that DeFi has a bigger role to play as rails within CeFi, which I'm sure you'll want to talk about because we've already spoken a little about this, you and I. But I think that the worst is over, at least in terms of the contagion. In terms of trust in the markets from people who are looking for a custodial partner, a trading partner, you know, where where do I earn yield? Who do I borrow against? We have a lot of work to do collectively. Uh, I feel like Abra's in a decent position there, but you know, this industry as a whole has a lot of work to do. Now, to me, it definitely is a really interesting opening for this DeFi discussion. So DeFi has a role to play. We generate yield via DeFi. It's been excellent for us. It's extremely complex to do right, which is part of my problem with the debate. Right. It's like saying, you know, if you know how a bank makes money, you can make a lot of money. Well, yeah, okay. You could go form a bank yourself. Frank Frank can form a bank and do everything a bank does to make money and you'd make all the money. Bill, I think your point that the point that you're gonna make, and I think it's it's astute, is if you were to rewind the clock like six months ago and ask the average person, do do I trust Abra or BlockFi or whomever to park funds in some weird esoteric smart contract that is nameless or with these two billionaires, most folks would have opted for the latter rather than the former. And I think the point you're making is, you know, you're, you're probably maybe better off parking it in a yield generating DeFi protocol than in ascertaining yield through centralized entities. Although to be fair, anchor is the counter argument to that. Yeah. That's not really my point. So, so I see it a little bit differently. And Anchor being a key part of that argument, right? I mean, sure. I can give you a list of, of losses in DeFi over the past few months. Ronin, Poly, Wormhole, Beanstalk. Sure, Vulcan. I mean, totally. You know, we, we, you've reported on all of these. So you know, you know the billions in losses that have been generated in DeFi rivaling the losses that have been uh, you know, generated in, in CeFi. But, but, you know, I think... Because of how our risk processes work in DeFi, specific to DeFi now, let's leave lending aside for a second, right? We've built up a risk management team in DeFi, which is part of the reason we got out of Anchor, the, the test, we, we had a couple of million in Anchor, we got out of it, okay? And with no losses, right? If you're understanding smart contract risk, governance risk, economic risk, operational risk, trading risk is specific to DeFi. And I think that there's a role for C5 firms to play to leverage DeFi rails Mm. to generate yield, implement new lending systems, but leverage the transparency of those solutions in a way that is harder for CeFi in a self-contained model to compete with. That's interesting and exciting to me, right? And I think that's a big part of our future. I don't think it's going to be a question of CeFi versus DeFi. I think the average consumer and the average investor 
cannot use DeFi rails. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to hear about how, you know, oh yeah, there's billions of dollars. It's a drop in the bucket. The average person who uses MetaMask loses money. Period. Whether it's for NFTs or DeFi, all our research shows the amount of money being lost by people using MetaMask is over the top insane. Okay, so now we have a problem. <laughs> people are losing money in C5, people are losing money in DeFi, right? You're losing 10% of your money a year, at least if you do nothing. So mm-hmm. what do you do? Right. So our take is, is the right solution as it relates to crypto is to start to leverage DeFi rails more and more in a responsible, transparent way so that users can see where the funds are allocated. Right. So if we offer ETH staking, for example, in Abra, that's a very rudimentary way of giving you basic DeFi access. If I was to give you access to Aave or Compound transactions, that's a very rudimentary way of giving you DeFi access without exposing you to the meta, what we call the MetaMask madness, and but with a consumer-friendly experience that is, um, you know, explaining to you the fact that you're now taking on risks yourself, as opposed to the lending model where you're relying on us to make certain decisions, mm. and people should understand the difference, right? So I, I think that there's a big role for CFI players to play here going forward. You know, uh, Rob from Compound is coming on Money Talks this week, and we're going to get into it because I know he's been railing yeah. against C5 players on this. And I don't, I, look, some of it is deserved. I don't completely agree with this perspective, which just is kind of like it's holistic. Go it's, just go yeah, direct. Just go direct. It's nonsense. Because, uh, okay, if you have a PhD in MetaMask, fine. But who does? Mm. Surely not me. Um, so <laughs> it's an interesting point. But what types of red flags do you need to look for in the DeFi world? Well, so, okay. Analogous to concentration risk, duration risk, and the other things we talked about in lending, we have a team that will basically do smart contract code audits. They'll look at everything from operational risk, meaning when we apply our monitoring tools to this, because DeFi is 24-7, Right. What are the operational risks that this presents? Are there security risks with using one protocol versus another? Right. What are the trading risks? So if you want to exit a position, what is the slippage that we're going to deal with? Mm-hmm. Right. The exit liquidity. Are we going to move the price of the tokens that we're being paid in on exit, just given the, the liquidity issues and the slippage? And we model all of that. The average investor would pr- is probably already lost in this discussion. Right just like they're lost in the average banking money market discussion, but mm-hmm. they still take the interest in the money market account, right? But the bank is expected to act responsibly and have disclosures about what they're doing in DeFi. That makes the, the, all of this much easier because those who are capable publicly of auditing what's happening in DeFi will tell the world if they find that Abra is not doing what they said they're going to do mm-hmm. vis-a-vis DeFi, right? So, so you can combine the best of risk management to curate a certain amount of services. Now, I think Abra eventually is going to provide access via our new MPC wallet to an entire DAP browser inside of the bank account, which is fine, meaning you can basically do whatever you want if you're a student and know how to do it. But then there's going to be curated DeFi opportunities because our team has come in and said, from a risk perspective, we believe that these are probably the best of the best out there right now for you, the borrowing directly, generating yield, um, staking, et cetera, et cetera. What is the state of crypto capital markets right now? I mean, has lending grinded to a halt? Are there borrowers out there still looking for money? It seems like, honestly, given all the headlines, prices seem to be handling the pressure okay. But the leverage has been completely sucked out. What yep. does that look like behind the scenes? Are there any? Are, are all the borrowers and lenders are they gone? Are they sitting on yep. their hands and twiddling their thumbs? Uh, no. Or one or the other. <laughs> right, right. The implication of your question is is correct in so far that yeah, there's there's a lot of demand that isn't being met. The uh, vast majority of the leverage that we see in the system is gone, and you know I don't know how that's going to evolve. But what I can tell you is that the the deals that we're getting, the stupid deals that we're getting done before are not getting done right now. Mm-hmm. And that's good. Yeah, right? that's good. So 
we'll see how this evolves. But I think that's why I think DeFi is really interesting here. Because if CeFi evolves to basically do what DeFi is already doing from a technology perspective, then it behooves us to migrate more and more to those rails because it makes the transparency and implementation easier, right? So, but we're not there yet. I mean, you know, there's certain like, there's lots of negotiated term loans and things that are too complex yet, so far, at least for DeFi, that'll change over time. Uh, there's certain types of structured products on the institutional side that are probably too complex or not liquid enough in the DeFi world yet. That will change over time. And so we're still riding both the rails of both worlds, but I certainly see more and more applications for DeFi in my world. But to your point or to your question, yes, there's big demand. Rates are, in some cases, have gone up and many deals aren't getting done because of the mismatch between the bid and the ask on a lot of these loans, um, which were probably five minute discussions 90 days ago. Well, here's the thing. You can't ghost a smart contract. Sure. And and I think that that's the bottom line there. Um, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. That's not the bottom line. Uh, because if you've had a rug pull, uh, if, if there's a security breach, if the exit fees uh, and the liquidity on the token are low, there are a whole bunch of issues that I'm sorry that the DeFi world, your bankless brethren totally. are not addressing. And it's bullshit. Let's call it what it is. So I think there is a degree of bullshit in the juxtaposition that's been made between how, you know, Celsius had to pay down those those DeFi loans before they did any of their CeFi loans. It's like, sure, they didn't great. have to do that. It just made sense to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the alternative is you get you get screwed twice. Uh, exactly. And, and, and that, that that point that you're making, I completely agree with. I mean, the beauty of hey, there's no discussion. And this is automated in our lending system, but it's not a smart contract for retail, right? If you've got a 25% LTV loan and you're underwater and you don't add collateral, you're liquidated. There's no discussion. But that's automated in our servers. This is automated in a way that you can see on a smart contract and you can't stop. If I basically said to my team, stop it, they could actually stop it. And you know that. But with, like you said, with, with DeFi, you can't. That is one huge benefit, huge, of DeFi. But that's not the whole story. And, and I think it's, it's a disservice to the entire kind of ecosystem of building out crypto banking, be it CeFi or DeFi, to, to not lay it all out there. Well, there's a lot. I mean, we're going to continue to see what, what comes out of this. It's certainly been very entertaining for me, um, has kept me going. Is there anything else in this whole saga, anything else you're thinking about, or maybe you think people aren't talking about enough? <sighs> Everything is getting uh, overanalyzed, over-discussed, and that's totally fine. Yeah. It's, it's just ironic that, you know, it's not tuning our horn. I, I mean, we, we've been traveling the world talking about risk management in crypto for crypto lending for two and a half years. Nobody really cared. It was like a snooze fest. And now it's like, can you come on our show and you and I talked about it earlier before this happened, but yeah. others like, can you come on our show and talk about risk management, which is fine. I mean, it's about time, but, but you know, until the next thing happens. Right. So, so who survives out of this bill? Like who are the banks? Banks. Here's what I think happens. Okay. I think Abra becomes a bank. I know Abra becomes a bank. Mm -hmm. I think the companies that survive, they either get out of the lending space or maybe they get insurance. What about insurance, Bill? Oh, whoa, whoa. What are you insuring? There's only two ways to pay yield on an investment or return on an investment in the United States. Securities offerings, mm -hmm. or if you're a government, you can issue bonds. If you're not a government, mm -hmm. you, security offerings, or you're a bank. So you might want insurance if you become a bank. Funds, generally, it's hard to get insured against losses if you have a fund structure, which is what I think BlockFi is moving towards, which... Uh, fine. I, I think that limits their growth potential, but that's a choice. So I think at scale, there's going to be the way there's thousands of banks because of the economies of scale of the internet and, and, and crypto, there's going to be less than 20 crypto banks that matter at big scale, whether they're set up as trusts or e-money companies or full-on banks or SPDIs or some combination of those, time will tell. Those are the players that will have a crypto-centric model that this contagion evolves to in a way that can gain back trust. 
mm-hmm. because I don't see any other way for an informed consumer right now yeah. to get their trust back other than to say, we are a fully regulated bank and the doors are open for business. That's it. I don't see any other way. But we we saw that two years ago. We just knew that we had to take these steps to get there because I didn't have the cash two years ago to, you know, to just become a full on bank. I, I, I do now. And I'm not just talking forever. I think that's where we go from here. And some of the smaller players won't be able to make that transition. It's literally been on my mind. I, I can't think of, you know, when I personally think about parking money onto some of these different platforms, I never, I never felt comfortable with it. I never felt comfortable with Celsius and Nexo. I mean, I just, I don't know what they're doing. And now we've discovered through the Celsius um, situation that the clients aren't even going to be considered creditors as far as I'm aware, um, based off some of the reporting that I've seen. And so I I totally agree with you, you know, not sure who the winner is going to be, but certainly there needs to be something. There needs to be some degree of certainty that something like this can't happen again. And I don't see how anyone comes out of the woods who's been impacted on the retail side um, that pause withdrawals. And even those who have kind of been, you know, hit with negative headlines, like, you know, know, credit to BlockFi for not being bankrupt, right? But I don't know how you can trust any of these firms with your money, unless the, again, the rate's high enough. If it's 25%, 20%, yeah, sure. We have no problem with that perspective because we think, look, trust is something that should be earned, pardon the pun. And and <laughs> we, we get the spectrum here of, and the irony is not lost on us, of taking you know, a trustless system like Bitcoin, mm-hmm. a theoretically trustless smart contract system like Ethereum, and saying, okay, we're going to use those rails to build the next generation of trusted solutions for mm-hmm. banking. The irony of this is not lost on me, okay? Been at this for a long time. But what I'm saying is, is that I think in that spectrum, the vast majority of the public is not in a position to become their own bank. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. but to all my maxi friends and we hang out, we go to conferences together, we go to the beach together. We just disagree on this. It's not, I I did PKI when most people never heard of the term. I've been dealing Mm -hmm. with key management for 30 years. It is not going to happen for, for Joe Public. And so the question becomes, how do we best take advantage of decentralization in the banking system. So there is a role for regulation in that to help the consumer take advantage of it. But if you do it correctly, I can always take my stuff out. Meaning if if Abra's run correctly, I have 24-7 access to my digital assets, whether it's the new NFT stuff or my Bitcoin or my getting stuff out of my yield product. I, I need to know that I have 24-7 way out. If that's the product, if I'm going to turn product, then so be it. But but other than that, I, I need to be able to get out and become in my own bank, at least in the ledger sense. Yeah, right? And, to some degree. Right. And, and, and at least know that the maxis that are out there are saying, look, we don't think you should trust anyone, but at least they're regulated. At least they're doing attestations about their reserves. And at least they have withdrawals for 100% of the assets they manage. You know, and, and so that's probably the, the, best, the best I'm ever going to get <laughs> from the bankless maxis. But we'll, get them, that, we'll get them after you. But they don't represent the public. They, they don't represent reality. They represent utopia. Yeah. You know? They, and, yeah. Right? And yeah, so exactly. I want a realistic migration to taking advantage of decentralization and basically integrating a society that doesn't have to rely on an audited financials to know what's what, but still can rely on the user experience that Abra can bring while we're bringing this DeFi stuff to you. And that's super powerful. And we're not there yet, right? And so that's why I think we have to become a bank. We have to be committed to these public disclosures. We have to be committed to me going on. It's a lot of work for me to get up at 6 a.m. every Friday, go on Money Talks and spend two and two and a half hours mm-hmm. answering the same questions over and over again. <laughs> it really, it's a lot of work. But there's no other way. So so that's what it's going to take. Yeah. It's going to take a lot, but we'll see. Um, does anyone else have a risk team? Do, do those exist in crypto? You know, um, 
you know, I won't name names, um, not to quote the meme, but I, I remember, and I wanted to write this story a year and a half ago about, no, 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 longer than that. It was before the pandemic. I had a conversation with someone, an, ex- an exchange or retail company CEO who said, the biggest issue I have is hiring for credit risk professionals in crypto. Mm. They just don't really exist. They don't. Yeah, we've and paid a lot. But that's that not totally was, true. Look, look. here's the big red flag. Okay, That was years ago, though. Yeah, sure. It's different today. But but here's a big red flag. If you're, if you're a big wealth fund, big institutional you know, set of funds, fund of funds, and you want to put some money to work in one of these companies, and you say, I want to have a risk discussion, and the CEO comes on the line, that's a big red flag. Okay? What you want to see is you want to see the chief risk officer, totally. the CFO, the head of the lending desk, you know, down the line. And you want to see like, it's like, you know, the beginning of the World Series game when they all line up on first and third base. That's what you want to see. Now, it's not just bodies for the sake of bodies. I mean, you got to ask the right questions. But if you have to ask me those questions, that's a big red flag. Yeah, totally. You need to have you need to have your reports yep. doing their thing. Bill, thanks so much for joining the show today. My pleasure. Definitely. So I'm sure most of our listeners know based off last time, but where can we dive into some of the money talks and where yep. can we find you on the internet? Yeah, we're easy to find abra.com, all kinds of content, the blog there, um, and also our YouTube channel for Abra. We do a uh, Friday AMA podcast. The product team comes on, the risk team comes on, the finance team comes on, and we answer all kinds of questions. Uh, and, and I try to be a little active on Twitter. I'm pretty busy these days, but I kind of batch my, my time online. So, but we're there, easy to find. Well, Bill, talk to you soon. Thank you so Thanks, much. Frank. Always good. See you. Ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.